All right, I think we're I think we're ready to begin our class. If you can go ahead and turn your Bible to First Corinthians chapter six. First Corinthians chapter six is where we left off last week, and we'll just pick up in verse twelve momentarily. First Corinthians six. And just by way of reminder, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8, Paul is talking to the Corinthians about taking each other to court and the various lawsuits that were taking place in the church and um, encouraging them not to embarrass one another before the unbelievers. And then he transitions in verses 9 through 11 and speaks about the idea that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, but instead there to be people that are washed and sanctified and justified. And then the last thing that Paul does, and this is a big deal, especially in connection with verse with chapter five and the man having his father's wife, first Corinthians six, 12 through 20. And this is where we'll begin today. Paul speaks extensively about fornication and the Corinthians need to flee sexual immorality. And so let's read first Corinthians six, 12 through 20. And then we'll make some comments about what Paul says in this section. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meat for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you who you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with the price. And so glorify God in your body. All right. So in summary, first Corinthians six, twelve through 20, Paul says, Fornication is forbidden, but notice how this argument begins, and this is important for the book of 1 Corinthians. This verse 12, all things are lawful for me. Many people believe, and it's probably right, some translations have it in quotes. This was a statement the Corinthians were saying to Paul. We'll meet another one of these statements in chapter 7, but it's as if they were saying this to Paul. Hey, look, all things are lawful. We're free to do whatever we want. And Paul's response is instead in verse 13, or at the end of verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And so Christians do have some liberties. Galatians 5.13 says we've been called to liberty, but we shouldn't use our liberty as an opportunity to serve the flesh, but instead through love to serve one another. And so the liberty, the freedom that we've been given in Jesus is not to practice whatever we want, but it's instead to glorify and honor God. And that's what Paul is driving at. He speaks of the temporal nature of this body. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. Verse 13, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. All right. So in this section, Paul's main point is no fornication allowed, but he also makes some important statements about our bodies. Maybe you've made statements like this before. You've heard statements like this before. God doesn't really care about the body. He just cares about the what? The soul. God's interested in the soul of an individual. And that's just not biblical. In the grand scheme of things, when the Bible says that God's going to save a soul in the end, what soul means, or I hope what we mean when we say we're in the soul saving business, soul there just means a person. It stands for the human individual. 
But the reality is God is concerned with and will save the entirety of our beings. Our bodies will be changed. Paul's going to spend 58 verses talking about that in First Corinthians 15. But the Bible says that God not only cares about the inner man, which he does, but he also cares about the body. Furthermore, what we do with the body. Let's go to a few places and just kind of flesh this out so you can see that the Bible is concerned with both ideas, what we do with our bodies. And God is also concerned with our interior, because it seems the problem at Corinth was much like the Gnostic heresy that would arise sort of at the end of the first century and really explode in the second, which is I can do whatever I want with the physical part of me as long as I keep the inner spiritual person holy and sanctified and set apart. But what Paul and the other New Testament writers are driving at is that's impossible. And God's concerned with the totality of our being. Go to First Thessalonians five. And we mentioned this in the lesson on Sunday night a few weeks ago. But notice First Thessalonians five and um, verse 20. We'll start in verse 23. And Paul here is praying for the entirety of the individual. Right. He cares about the entire body of the Christians that he's writing to. So First Corinthians five and verse 23. First Thessalonians five, 23. Excuse me. This is Paul's prayer. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and what else and your body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Paul's praying not only for the soul and the spirit, which we normally emphasize, but he also prays that their whole body be kept blameless. What would that be about? It would be about, at least in part, this idea of fornication and keeping themselves from sin that would ultimately corrupt and destroy their relationship with Jesus. Go to one more passage with me on this. Go to third John. Go to third John. Third John, verse two. Now, this is John writing to his friend Gaius, and he's going to say a similar thing about his concern about the whole the whole being of the man that's named Gaius. Start in verse one. Just go to third John one. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Behold, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Older translations like the King James say, I wish that all goes well with you and that you may prosper even as your soul prospers. And so there John is saying, hey, I want your soul to prosper. I want the spiritual aspects of you to prosper just like your body, just like the physical part of you. God's concerned with both of those things. And so in first Corinthians six, where Paul is speaking to the Corinthians about fornication and making sure that they keep themselves pure, we shouldn't get the idea that, well, the only thing God's concerned with is the soul. What we do with our bodies ultimately matters to God, especially as it relates to being pure and holy in his sight. He says that God raised up Jesus in verse 14 and he will also raise us up by his power. Why why would Paul bring that up? The resurrection of Jesus in this section about fornication. Why would he say God raised up the Lord and then he'll raise up Jesus by his power in verse 14? That's right. He's going to do something with this body and he has a regard for our body. So in first Corinthians 15, where Paul says, hey, one day God's going to resurrect us and transform our bodies. One of the things that Paul continues to drive at is this current body. God's going to use this material. He's going to transform it, no doubt. But Paul says it is sown in corruption. It's raised incorruptible. It is sown in weakness. It'll be raised in power. The very bodies that we have. I don't know how all of this works and neither do you. But God's going to do something with these bodies to transform them. We will not float around in heaven as sort of disembodied spirits on clouds. We will have bodies, resurrected bodies, very much like Jesus. And in some way, Paul says, there's a continuity of sorts. There is a connection between this body and the next. And so what we do in this body counts. 
because God's going to use this material. So stay away from fornication. Don't fornicate. Paul wants them to keep this in mind. Notice verse 15. Do you not know now he now he makes this connection with our connection with God. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members with the prostitute or with the harlot? Never. This word means in the original. May it never be so. Don't even think about it. Some translations add in this. God forbid. It's the strongest negation that Paul can use to say, I don't even want you to think like this. Our members, our bodies are considered members of Christ. What does that mean? Our bodies are the members of Christ. And then Paul says, hey, if you take those members and join them to a prostitute, I don't even want you to do that. But what does Paul mean that our bodies are members of Christ? They're joined to Christ. Yeah, that's right. Our body. What was that? It's connected, right? But our bodies physically, these bodies are the instruments that Jesus uses in this life to get what he wants done. So our bodies are members of Christ. If Jesus is going to get anything done in this world now, he's not going to climb out of the clouds to do it, but it's going to be through his people, his providence. God can do what he wants. I understand that. But he's commissioned us to do it. And so as members of Christ, as an extension of heaven's arsenal to do what God wants in this world, we can't be on both sides of this. There was a pagan temple, or at least there was believed to be a pagan temple in Corinth where these prostitutes would be and individuals would go into those prostitutes and commit fornication. And it was often viewed by the pagans in Corinth as worship to the pagan deities as they would be in connection with these individuals and then in turn thought to be worshiping these pagan deities. Paul is saying you're connected to a new God. You have a new identity that goes back up to verse 11 in chapter six, where he says you've been washed and sanctified and justified. Don't go back to your old way of living because now you've been united with Jesus. And verse 16, do you not know that he that is joined to the prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will be one flesh. Paul quotes Genesis 2, 24, where God says the two husband and wife will be one flesh. And so this relationship to fornication, Paul is saying, I don't want it to be even named once among you as become saints. He who joins in verse 17, he who joins himself to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And so if we're one and united with Jesus, we can't in turn engage in sexual immorality and be united to those that we have no right to and maintain our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, we talked about this last week when we were in verses nine through eleven and Paul mentions those various sins. You see him in verse nine and ten, adulterers, sexual immoral, immoral, the drunkards and all of that. What did we say about sin? What did we say about big sin and little sin? What was our conclusion about that? All sin is sin. Who agrees with that? Show of hands. All sin is sin. Who doesn't agree with that? The rest of y'all are undecided. Okay, great. So, yeah, what do we mean by all sin is sin? That's right, Kevin. Sin separates you from God. When we say all sin is sin, what we mean is in the end, all sin, no matter how big or how small, will produce the same result. Right. It'll ultimately separate you from God. And if we remain unrepentant or impenitent in that sin, we'll ultimately lose our eternal soul. But I want you to see in verse 18 that Paul also says all sin is, quote unquote, not the same. Right. Look at verse 18. Flee fornication or sexual immorality. Why? For every other sin that a person commits is outside the body. But the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. 
There is a uniqueness about this sin, according to Paul, that is different from the others. Every other sin wrongs someone else. If you steal or if you murder or if you lie or something like this. But Paul says sexual immorality is the double edged sword because in so doing, you actually are hurting your own body. You're hurting yourself. And so this sin is unique in God's mind, according to Paul. And we should do what's necessary to avoid it. This idea of flee sexual immorality. That means what? Run away from it. Go in the opposite direction. This isn't a sin where you test your spiritual strength to see how much you can withstand. Paul says you are to run in the other direction. Anybody do this in the Bible? Can you think of anybody who put on their Palestinian Nikes and ran away from sexual immorality? Joseph. Joseph, That's what I'm thinking about. Genesis 39. You remember with Potiphar's wife? She continues to tug at Joseph. He rejects her advances. And then one day she just lays hold of Joseph. And what does he do? Leaves the garment in her hand and goes out the other direction. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's a great question. Suicide and it being a sin against your body. Um, the Bible does address suicide in several places, but maybe not explicitly. And maybe this isn't the forum to do it, but I'll give some summary thoughts on it. How about that? And maybe if we want, we can do a question and answer session on that some part. But um In summary, I'd say this. All suicide is not the same. So you do have occasions where individuals like Saul think about first Samuel chapter 30. He falls on his sword because he doesn't want to be killed by the Philistines. You might call Samson's actions in Judges 16 heroic suicide and those sorts of things. And in certain instances, the Bible would obviously condemn it. But then there are certain isolated cases. And I really don't want to go down this trail too far unless you all want to. But there would be certain isolated cases where an individual might not be um, mentally accountable anymore. There may be some mental or chemical imbalance where a person would harm themselves and be outside of their mind, so to speak, on those occasions. And just like in other cases where we would fit readily acknowledge that a person is not accountable, at least in that instance, to God because of their behavior, I just don't see God holding a person accountable necessarily if that is the case. Again, God's the judge. He's going to handle that. And I believe those should be taken on a case by case basis. But I would be very hesitant to say all individuals that commit suicide are in category X or even Y. I wouldn't say everybody that does it is mentally unaccountable, but neither would I say everybody that does is. And um, I think you can see some of that, at least in Scripture. It is unnatural for us to hurt ourselves. Ephesians five, Paul says no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. And so when a person is harming themselves, there are some other things that are going on. And so we would need to explore that in a little bit more detail. But the Bible does address it, though, not specifically. Of course, God doesn't want us to hurt ourselves, hurt ourselves. And so if that's happening, there are some things that may be going on or that may need to be addressed. So first Corinthians six. It's talking about, I guess, in connection with some of these sins. Hey, it's not normally natural for a person to do this, but a person that willfully engages in sexual immorality hurts himself and sins against his own flesh. Dwight, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So God performs the first marriage ceremony in Genesis 2, right? 18 down through 24. It's not good for a man to be alone. And then he makes a help meet for Adam. And um, I believe C.S. Lewis said this. Humans don't have desires or urges for which there is no outlet for them to express it. And so if you're hungry, there's a such thing as food. Right. We are sexual creatures. And so there's a need for that. But in every one of those instances, 
God has provided the right outlet for us to exercise it. And so there's nothing wrong with having urges or desires as long as they're channeled in the right way. And I believe what Dwight's describing is that God has provided in his eternal wisdom an outlet for that. And that is in the union of marriage, but only in that union. And to do so outside of that is not only to lie to someone else, but it's also to lie to God who gave us the institution in the first place and to circumvent that and say, you know what, God, I know better than you. I can exercise this need in a way that's outside of your will and things will be perfectly fine. But we see time and time again throughout scripture and in in lives of people we know, and even in our own, as we fall, we fall and make mistakes that that never turns out good. God is not only God is not restricting us in first Corinthians six because he has some desires of his own to say, I want you shackled. But God knows best and fornication never turns out for good for anybody who practices it. And so, yes, God is pushing us toward holiness. All right. Verse 18. Again, Paul says, flee fornication. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But sexual immorality, a person sins against his own body. Um, This is strong. And we talked about Joseph. But another thing I want us to consider is what Jesus says in Matthew five. Go to Matthew chapter five and notice verses 26, really down through verse 30. Matthew five. And we'll we'll just start in verse 27. How's that? Matthew Five twenty-seven down through 30. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And so Jesus is saying in this section, what? What do you think Jesus is really driving at in verses 27 through 30? Sometimes there's a lot of attention spent on whether or not people should actually dismember themselves. We know that's not what Jesus wants. But what's his main point here? How would you just summarize Matthew 5, 27 through 30? If it's something that's separating you from God, you need to get rid of it. I think that's a great start. I think that's right. But let's go a step further. I think Jesus is saying something even a little stronger than that. If it's something that separates you from God, let's start there. You need to get rid of it. But let's go a step further. What else is Jesus saying in this text? Even if it hurts. So I think we have it there. If we put both of those together, we might say in Matthew 5, 27 through 30, Jesus is saying, take whatever drastic measures you must take. To be separated from things that separate you from God, comma, because if you don't, you'll ultimately be separated from him in eternity. Take whatever drastic measures you have to take. It may seem weird to others. You may drive down another street now to avoid lust and take a longer route to work. You may even move jobs because of a temptation that's there. You take whatever drastic measures you have to take to avoid what separates you from God because it won't be worth it in hell. Right. He says in verse 30, it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body going to hell. We shouldn't approach this text and say, well, Jesus wasn't speaking literally and spend all of our time talking about that. We'd be better off spending our time saying Jesus was saying something and it was shocking. And let's get to the heart of what he's saying. And so in first Corinthians six, Paul says, flee fornication. Can you imagine the Corinthians saying the temples are all around us? All of this temptation is just the society in which we live. Paul saying you run full speed in the other direction and do whatever you have to do to get away from it. Last thing in first Corinthians six, before we go into chapter seven, is Paul speaks of our relationship, the relationship of our bodies to the Holy Spirit. 
Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And some translations have this ending and in your spirit, which are God's. And so who dwells in us? God, all all the members of the Godhead dwell in us. Right. Second Corinthians six sixteen says God dwells in us as our father. Ephesians three fourteen through 17. Paul says Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. But the Holy Spirit dwells in us, I believe, in a unique way, according to what the New Testament says, as a down payment on our eternal home. He's called an earnest in Second Corinthians five and verse five, a down payment on what God's going to eventually give us in heaven. He's the seal of our redemption, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And so when you think about this idea that whatever I do in my body, the Holy Spirit is dwelling within me and what I do in my body can either grieve him or gladden him. It should humble us to be careful with what we do in our body and all of our actions, what we say, what we think, what we do. But especially according to Paul in this situation, don't commit fornication. The Holy Spirit is living within you. You can't just join all three of those. You, the Holy Spirit and this other person to whom you have no right and think that God's just going to look the other way. Now, go back to verse 12 in the beginning of this statement that the Corinthians would make. All things are lawful for me. Well, not all things. You can't do whatever you want because God's going to hold you accountable. And so grace doesn't mean license. Some people think because God's gracious and kind and merciful, they can do whatever they want. But the reality is God's monitoring our actions and he wants us to live holy. We can mistreat the Holy Spirit, right? That's possible. Look at two passages on this. Ephesians chapter four and notice verse 30. The Holy Spirit dwells in us and we can mistreat him. And Paul is encouraging the Corinthians not to do this. Ephesians four and notice verse twenty nine down through thirty. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then in first Thessalonians five nineteen, Paul says, don't quench the spirit. Don't put out his fire by rebelling against the words that are given to you by God's spokesman. And so if the Holy Spirit lives in us and he does, if we're Christians, God gives the Holy Spirit to everybody who obeys him. Acts 532. We should be concerned with how we act. You know what else that means? It means God is closer than we think. We typically think about God in heaven. And that's right. We pray to God, our father, which art where in heaven. But it's also our father and our God, which art within me. God's closer than we think, and that should humble us. Chuck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. The Holy Spirit is a comforter. He's personal. That's the way Jesus describes him in John 14. But he also is, if you want to just keep that train of thought going, he's a comforter. He's an encourager. But he's also a convictor. He convicts us through the word when we're not doing what we should. And you're right that he comforts us and encourages us through the words of Scripture, hopefully pushing us in the right direction to do the things that honor and glorify God. But he won't encourage us and pat us on the back as we run in the opposite direction of the father. And so because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, this should be motivation for us to do the right thing. And this is what Paul is getting at the Corinthians with. We can't just do what we want with our bodies and think God doesn't care about it. Look at the end of verse 20. For you were bought with a price. So what's our responsibility? It's not just not to commit fornication. That's not only what our bodies are supposed to be for. Well, here are all of the things you might think about your body this way. Here are all of the things that I won't do because I'm a Christian. No fornication, no lying, no stealing. You could take first Corinthians six, nine and ten and make a pretty good list of all of the thou shall nots. And that would be great. But what does Paul say at the end of verse 20? What are we supposed to do with our bodies? 
glorify God in your body. So our our thoughts should be in our lives. What can I do with this body to glorify the God who gave it to me? How can I give God glory? How can God get sort of bragging rights? How will people of God because of the way that I use my body? Paul's saying glorify God in the bodies that you have. Don't ruin it by the way that you live. All right. Anything else on First Corinthians chapter six before we go to chapter seven? Yeah, um, Neil did that a few weeks ago. Watch it on YouTube. No, I'm just kidding. He did, though, in Q&A. He did it a few weeks ago. The Bible says in the end, the body's going to return back to the dust who gave it. And so whether a person's buried or cremation, it merely speeds up the process of what's going to happen to our bodies. But this we know, 1 Corinthians 15, God and his magnificent, omnipotent power is going to be able to resurrect all bodies and do something glorious with them. And so what a person chooses to do with their body at this life's end, I believe is totally up to that person. There is some cremation to honor Saul is done in Second Samuel chapter one and in chapter two when they take those bodies because Saul and Jonathan have been beheaded and their bodies are burned. And so it happens in the Bible. But there is no New Testament commandment for how the body must be disposed of. But we know this. There have been people lost that sea. You can think about all the various things that have happened to people's bodies. And Paul assures us that regardless of the fact, God's going to resurrect our bodies and then transform them. And so why should we interrupt it, you're saying? Yeah, I don't know if it's really an interruption. Again, if a person's body is buried, eventually um, the body's going to be disposed of in the end. There's going to be it's going back to dust either way. So whether we press fast forward on that process or whether we allow nature to take its course in the end, um, all of the bodies are going to end up in the same condition if the Lord delays his coming. And so we can look at it from various points of view. But in the end, we might have our personal conviction about it as long as we don't say, well, this is what God wants us to do with the body, because the New Testament just makes no such command on anybody. What you have something? Yeah, that's right. A lot of that's Old Testament stuff in the book of Leviticus that talks about ceremonial uncleanness. But it was never done because of any idea that the body was going to have some sort of, you know, that they had to do this because God wanted them to as far as burial. It was to honor the dead and all of that. But in the end, again, we're going to end up in the same situation. So whether you decide to speed that up or whether you delay the process, God's going to be working with dirt, which, by the way, that's what he started with to begin with. So he'll be good. He'll he'll take it from there. All right. Yeah. Yeah, there are some liberties and matters of judgment. In fact, not just Romans 14, but Paul will spend three chapters talking about this in First Corinthians 8, 9 and 10, where he'll talk about areas where Christians can differ and maintain fellowship and take different approaches to things. And we've got to allow each other the liberty to do those things. Now, First Corinthians seven. Let's talk about matters of marriage. Paul has been correcting problems up to this point with the Corinthians. Remember the first four chapters? Paul said, don't divide over what or over who we should say. Over the preachers. Remember, don't divide over different preachers. Chapters five and six, Paul deals with fornication and matters of the court. But in chapter seven, the rest of the book of first Corinthians takes a turn. And what Paul's going to deal with from chapter seven through chapter 16, really, are issues that the Corinthians had written to him about. They wrote to him about some things. And now Paul, from chapter seven through the end, is responding to those things. And so the rest of the book is Paul's response. The first six chapters are problems they're dealing with. Seven through 16, Paul's responding in a sort of biblical Q&A, if you will, as they wrote to him, what about marriage? And can we eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols, even if we don't believe in the idols anymore? And how should we be doing the Lord's Supper? 
And what about spiritual gifts? Is prophecy more important than tongues? Or what about the resurrection from the dead? Some people are saying, Paul, there's no resurrection. And we're supposed to be getting some money together for the folks in Jerusalem. How should we collect that? And Paul's going to write over and over again. And when you see this phrase in the book of 1 Corinthians, now concerning. Paul is launching into one of those discussions and he'll write till he's done with that. And then he'll launch into the next one. Now concerning. Notice a few. Look at first Corinthians seven and verse one. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And here's a quote from the Corinthians. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And Paul is going to write about that. Well, what about this? A man shouldn't touch a woman. Paul, isn't it great then that we just abstain and be celibate? Well, Paul is going to talk about it in chapter seven. Now go to chapter eight and verse one. First Corinthians eight and verse one. After he talks about marriage at length, here's the next question they ask Paul. Now concerning food offered to idols. Here's a quote from the Corinthians. All of us possess knowledge. And Paul's going to spend chapters eight, nine and ten talking to the Corinthians about food that had been offered to idols. Go to chapter 12 and verse one. Chapter 12 and verse one, Paul's going to talk about spiritual gifts after he talks about the Lord's Supper at the end of verse 10 and into chapter chapter 11. Chapter 12 and verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be misinformed or uninformed. And in chapters 12, 13, and 14, what's Paul going to talk to him about? Spiritual gifts and how to use them and which ones mean the most and how they shouldn't be divided over that. And then the last one is in chapter 16. We're probably most familiar with this one because of this passage often being used before the collection, which is perfectly fine. But in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I gave order to the churches of Galatia, you do the same on the first day of the week. Set something aside from chapter seven through 16. Paul is saying now concerning the stuff you wanted to know about. Here's some instruction. The first one we're going to deal with with the time we have remaining is marriage. And chapter seven of first Corinthians is sometimes a challenging. It is a challenging chapter. Paul's dealing with several things. He's going to deal with people who are already married and what should they do? But what about being married to a non-Christian? And if I'm a Christian and I've obeyed the gospel and I'm married to somebody who's not, Paul, do I have to end that relationship? And what if I'm single? Is it right to remain single or do I have to get married? And what if I've been married and now I'm a widow? Should I seek to be married again? And Paul's going to say several things in these 40 verses about Christians and their relationship to marriage. But before we delve into 1 Corinthians 7, it's important that we just get a few foundational things under our belt and what the Bible says about marriage before we touch this chapter. Because here's one of the problems that people have with 1 Corinthians 7. It's not 1 Corinthians 7's fault. It's the human element in us that has a problem. Sometimes people approach first Corinthians seven as if it can undo what Paul said in other places. And they talk about the Pauline privilege. We'll talk about that here is if Paul gives some additional reasons and authorizations for marriages to be severed and broken off. But that's not what's taking place at all. So let's get some of these foundational principles underhand. And you might write these down. I'm not going to turn to all of them just for time's sake. But number one, marriage is God's institution. It's God ordained and he designed it to be permanent. That's Genesis 2, 18 through 24. Marriage is God's institution, is God ordained, and he designed it to be permanent. Genesis 2, 18 through 24. Every time somebody in the Bible, Jesus and Paul specifically, are asked about marriage, they go back to Genesis chapter 2. When the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? They wanted to talk to Jesus about divorce. Jesus started talking about marriage. And he quoted Moses. Haven't you read your Bible? Genesis 2, 18 through 24. 
A man is supposed to be one with his wife. It's in Matthew 19, and then Paul mentions it again in Ephesians 5, 22 through 32. It is the golden text on marriage. It's what God originally designed. That's number one. But number two, God hates divorce. Malachi 2, 14 through 16. God hates divorce. And then the third thing, and we will read this one. Go to Matthew 19. And I know this was dealt with in the Q&A last Sunday night, but we're going to read this. Jesus is teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Matthew 19, 1 through 12. It's important to read this passage, and then we'll be ready for 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So remember the three. Marriage is God-ordained. It's God's institution. It's designed to be permanent. Genesis 2, 18 through 24. God hates divorce. Malachi 2, 14 through 16. And Jesus' foundational teaching in the new covenant on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. I'm in Matthew 19, verse 1, and I'll read down through verse 12. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That was their question. Can we get divorced whenever we feel like it? Here's his answer. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man will leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two of them will be one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And that should have been the end of it. Jesus, can we get divorced whenever we want? He says, Listen to what Moses said in Genesis 2, 18 through 24. But they have more questions. Look at verse 7. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So they mentioned Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, and they say, hey, Moses gives us the opportunity to get divorced. Jesus says, no, Moses told you how to handle divorce rightly if you so choose. But from the beginning, that wasn't God's intent. And now he lays down the teaching on this for all time. Verses nine through twelve. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for the cause of sexual immorality or fornication and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her, which is put away, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone who can not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So Jesus says in verse nine, you can't put away your spouse. Unless it's for sexual immorality. And if you divorce for any other reason beside that one, whoever you get married to, you're now in an adulterous relationship. It shocks the disciples. And they say, if this is how it is with the man and his wife, nobody should get married. And Jesus says, what you just said about celibacy, everybody can't handle that. But some people can. And some people are eunuchs or unmarried because they're born with certain physical handicaps. Some people, at least in this world, were that way because of the jobs they undertook. Cupbearer or working in the king's harem or something like that. And then there were some people who wanted to go to heaven bad enough that they just decided for the kingdoms of heaven's sake, they wouldn't engage and they remain celibate. And Jesus is saying the one who is able to receive that teaching, receive it. And now we're ready for first Corinthians seven with those things in mind. We won't get far, but it was necessary to cover that ground first. First Corinthians seven verses one through nine. Paul gives his instruction for our responsibilities to one another as spouses. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. 
The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so Paul starts out by addressing something they said to him. It's not good for a man to touch a woman. Some people occasionally will highlight celibacy as if it makes them more godly. But the Bible doesn't teach that, does it? Before sin ever entered the world in Genesis 2:18, God said it's not good for a man to be alone. And so Paul says that's not correct. That's not what I taught you. But instead, marriage is a good thing. What are some reasons why people get married or should get married? Can you think of some reasons? Some of y'all are married. Y'all don't. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah. What are some reasons why a person would get married? To have children. Genesis 128, be fruitful and multiply. That could be part of this. That is a part of it. That's what God gave initially, at least one of the reasons with Adam and Eve. But that wouldn't be the only one, would it? So that people might have children. That's one reason. Yeah, that's one. That's the main reason Paul gives here for purity purposes. Right. Paul says so that we can avoid fornication. And this goes back to something Dwight mentioned about purity in life to avoid fornication. Let every man have his own wife and every wife have her own husband. That would be a reason. Another one could be loneliness. And you could think of a host of reasons. But a person who can't control themselves sexually or who can exercise that degree of control that Paul's talking about here. It's a good idea to get married. And they shouldn't be shamed for that. Paul is saying, hey, this is one of the lawful reasons to engage in a marital relationship so that a person is not carried away. All right. And so the husband should or at the end of verse two, every man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Sometimes people say, well, the New Testament never directly deals with homosexuality and marriage. Paul deals with it here, doesn't he? Each man should have his own what? Wife and each wife should have her own what? Husband, that's it. Those are the only parties allowed to engage in the marital relationship. And Paul covers that here. All right. But not only that, Paul talks about the the type of quality that of a relationship that a husband and wife should have with each other. And in verses three down through verse five, Paul speaks of the sexual intimacy that should characterize our relationships. We're going to run out of time soon, but let me just say this before we get into this this subject. To the degree that we don't talk about this in the church, the devil has devices to talk about it in other ways. We need to be mature. We need to be wise. We need to be wholesome. But the Bible talks about this sexual intimacy between spouses. And if we ignore it or it shames us and we act like it's not there, we do so to our own detriment. I had a professor in grad school. We were going through the poetic books and he was talking about, you know, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And he said, guys and girls that were in the class, listen, the Bible has a whole book that talks about sexual intimacy. It's the Song of Solomon. Don't shy away from it. And he followed that up with. But the Bible only has one book on it. So don't get carried away. There needs to be a balance. Right. But we need to say something about it. For every virtue that we fail to teach in the church, Satan has a vice to insert in his place. And so if we don't want to have these conversations, we don't want to talk about it. Satan will just present his doctrine on it. Sex isn't a bad thing. It's God ordained. It's God given. 
it's the fall, Genesis 3 forward, that shames us about it and keeps us from talking openly, frankly, and godly on the subject. But it's in the New Testament. And if we're going to be God's people, we need to be those that talk about it. Is that the second bell or the first one? That's the second one. Well, there we go. We've got to quit. First Corinthians 7. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing. Appreciate your time. Appreciate